Welcome to Pharmacy Fika, the podcast where pharmacy educators come to refuel and reflect. Just like a Swedish fika, this is your opportunity to pause and enjoy a beverage and something nice to eat. At the Pharmacy Fika, we explore teaching and learning and how to navigate the highs and lows of academic life. Think of it as a coffee break for your academic soul. So grab your favorite beverage and let's dive into today's conversation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fika Epidose number 27. We're in a new year now, and it's great to have everybody here. We actually have a couple of guests today. And I'm going to turn the microphone over to Tina Brock today because she's going to introduce our guests, and we're going to do some snack sharing before we get into our topic. So welcome, everybody. For my snack today, I have a delicious fermented beverage, some delicious kombucha, and some frozen grapes. They're like nature's little popsicles for me today. What about you, KJ? Well, I just came out of a two-hour committee meeting, and I made my way directly to a handful of macadamia nuts, five to be precise, because I know we're (laughs) precise about our nut eating, and I had five (laughs) macadamia nuts, and they were amazing, nice, salty little pick-me-ups. I want to know if the nuts were covered in chocolate. Dark chocolate. (laughs) She's shaking her head no. <laughs> I, I'm pretty weak today. I have my club soda with a little pineapple flavoring in it today because it's late in the day for us. We're recording our episodes now late in the day, so it's sort of like the afternoon coffee break for those fika lovers. But yeah, it's it's a little lame, and I don't have a snack. I'm kind of disappointed. I'm actually kind of hungry. I was in the <laughs> DEI Institute all day, AACP's. DEI Institute all day today, so I haven't really had much to eat. Jeff, what about you? Do you have any shocking? Would you like to guess? <laughs> I have blood orange sparkling water. That's it. I have dinner waiting on me. As soon as this is over, I have dinner waiting on me, so no snacks. Oh, I appreciate you guys accommodating my time zone, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest, and then I'm going to ask them to share a little bit about their snack as well. So we have uh, Dr. Caroline Coe from UAP and Dr. Ela Saunders from UCSD, and they are both part of the founding leadership team of an organization called Farm Grad Wishlist. I'll go into that a little bit more detail in a moment, but Caroline, what did you bring as your snack and beverage of choice? Well, I'm so excited to be here. I've listened to literally every Pharmacy Fika epidote since the very beginning. So I tried to actually bring something that would appeal to everybody. Um, so I have a glass of water on my desk for Jeff. Um, I have some tea and it is actually um, maple espresso tea from Trader Joe's to appeal to Kristen and Tina. And then um, it's really funny that you just mentioned macadamia nuts because I actually brought chocolate covered macadamia nuts with a coconut flavor as well from my trip to Kauai with my sister last summer. So got everybody covered. And you've made Stuart very, very hungry. (laughs) What about you, Ela? So I have a decaf chai. I have my UCLA mug here because I'm a proud Bruin. A decaf chai herbal tea to sip on in my very freezing office right now. And then I also have some these delicious, I keep these in my office, edamame beans. They're like these dry roasted, high protein, high fiber beans that I keep in my office for snacks. So I mentioned that we had Caroline and Ela here from Farm Grad Wishlist. And I will tell you, 
our overarching theme is about service and how service is counted in the academy and how we decide what we do and why we do it and and the impact of that. Two times in my career, I, I think I've worked in a lot of great places with a lot of great people, but two times in my career, I've been envious of ideas. One was in the University of North Carolina at the, at the start of my career, someone called Gina Upchurch started this amazing program called Senior Pharmacist. Google it. It's amazing. And now towards the end of my career, when I heard about this amazing initiative, Farm Grad Wishlist, and recognized some of the names on the founding members, I was like, this is incredible work that I suspect at some point in the founding, someone, a wise mentor said, don't do this. It'll be too much trouble. You won't get credit for it. You could be doing something that's more easily counted, but truly envious of the amazing work that these guys are doing. So, Ela, Caroline, I don't know if you want to give us a little background on Farm Grad Wishlist, what it is and how it got started. Sure. So, Farm Grad Wishlist, we started in spring of 2021 as a group of practicing pharmacists and pharmacy educators from across the U.S., Our goal was really to try to provide financial sponsorship directly to individually racially and ethnically minoritized pharmacist trainees. So at the time, this idea kind of came out of a Twitter campaign that was happening in medicine. So it was a movement called MedGrad Wishlist that started on Twitter, and they basically were taking um, graduating medical students and asking them to post Amazon wish lists of, of things that they might need to make the transition from medical student to practicing physician. And so a lot of us saw this on Twitter. And I did think for a split second, like, wouldn't it be so great if we had something like this for pharmacy and kind of immediately talked myself out of like starting this myself. But luckily, Betsy Hirsch from UMN was there. And it's also very active on Twitter. And she actually did post on Twitter, hey, does anyone want to start something like this for farm grads? And so a bunch of us jumped on board right away. We really were excited about just this initiative and the idea. And we quickly expanded beyond just the Amazon wish list to fundraising for large item lotteries. And so this was where we would randomly select a trainee and they would have a GoFundMe that's dedicated to them to raise money for larger expenses, such as moving expenses or licensing exam fees or new laptops or whatever it was they needed to make the transition. And after that first round, we decided, you know, it's probably time to come up with a mission and a vision for our group. And so what we came up with is that we really wanted to promote equity by sponsoring racially and ethnically minoritized pharmacists and pharmacist trainees as they progress through the profession. And so after that first round of large item lotteries, we decided to do a residency and fellowship scholarship program. And the goal here was to really help those students who are applying to these programs and allow them to apply for financial assistance. And so it was overwhelmingly positive, which we I don't think we expected such a high need. And so we funded 20 scholarships in 2021 to 2022. And we had 223 sponsors at that time, which was amazing. And we gave $2,500 scholarships. And as each year progressed, it actually went up from there. The 2022-23, we had 39 and 85 unique donors and five organizations jumped in at that time. And at that point, for the actual spring fundraising, we had actually 130 wish lists at that point. And then most recently in this past year, led by Dr. Jam and Dr. Betsy Hirsch, 
they collaborated with ASHP and we were able to get 50 scholarships this most recently, which was amazing. Just such incredible work. And I think if you put that in the context of the the papers we write, the, the classes that we teach, it, you, you can imagine that that is a true investment in the future of pharmacy, opening doors for people who may not have those opportunities. However, I bet, at least at none of the institutions that I've worked for thus far, that might have been sort of a one dot point on my annual review to be able to say I was involved in this movement. But that's a pretty complicated thing you've just described. It probably took a substantial amount of time. Am I right? Yes, you're yes. Very, 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 very right. It did take a lot of time. And I think all of us had a lot of heart and soul put into this because we really believed in it. And we still do. And we really wanted to put as much effort as we can with the time that we had in we spread, we spread it out amongst 10 of us, mm-hmm. and that really helped ensure that no one was really burdened. Yeah, we definitely shared the workload. I yeah. mean, there was a giant text thread that started that was just like, oh, there's a new trainee who just signed up. Can somebody jump on and add them? And so back and forth. When I was first joining, I was actually still a practicing pharmacist. And so I had my full-time 40-hour-a-week you know, pharmacist job, and then this was like evenings and weekends and all of that. Yeah, so... It definitely didn't count for me at that time, but it's obviously a a passion. Yeah. For me, I understand a little bit about this kind of work because I've been involved in a community of practice that I've helped moderate for a number of years. And so there's the technical things like how do you connect people who want to be donors? How do you connect people who could be supported? How do you have uh, a mission and who are we trying to support so you can attract donors and have the right people that you want to support? But then there's some of the legal issues. I don't know if you've incorporated it and and make the donations possible for people to get a tax write-off because that helps. And that's a whole legal jumble of mess <laughs> for sure. And And have you gone down that road so that we can tell people that they can donate and get a nice tax write-off? It so is. Yeah, it was definitely a big um, tangle. (laughs) We started talking about this early on, actually, about trying to form a nonprofit because how the GoFundMe's were set up, they could only be active for like a certain number of days. And so we can't even have a GoFundMe continuously going because it doesn't really meet the the initiatives Mm -hmm. that we're doing. Right. So we have started conversations about that. So there's a small subgroup, about three of us who have been continuously talking about how to set up this nonprofit. And Caroline was instrumental in setting us up with a lawyer to just get some advice early on, mm-hmm. which was instru- which was amazing and incredibly helpful, but ma- made us realize, okay, this is going to be a lot harder than we thought. What we recently found is an organization that one of the physicians I work with, he was able to actually get funds to his organization through a local philanthropy organization through our institution. And so we're actually meeting tomorrow with that contact to see if there's a way that we can utilize what's in place currently to develop a nonprofit and stream of funds that's more fluid and easier to work with. I I raise this all up is because this is a lot of work to do this kind of thing. And it's a kind of service that has an impact and is so needed. It's ecumenical. It's not based in a single institution. It's about supporting people to go on and get these advanced 
credentials and, and degrees in some cases so that we can advance the profession and, and advance the academy. And so I applaud you a lot for this work. Well, one thing before we kind of turn it over to, to general discussion, I, I wanted to say, I suspect, I haven't looked at everybody's websites, but knowing what's going on in pharmacy practice, knowing the themes of the AACP meetings over several years, and even the institute that's going on today, people are starting to pay more attention to DEI initiatives. But this was an organic system that was created outside of those initiatives. And I wondered, have you had any success in getting some partnering from your institutions to say, hey, this is something that we could support and codify a little bit in a way that helps it count? I, I didn't hear one one bit of suggestion you were doing it for credit. And yet, how we choose our time is our most valuable asset. So being able to do this impactful work and aligning it with your university mission or school mission, has that been very successful? So as of right now, no, I'll let you know after our conversation tomorrow. <laughs> that being said, I think we've been able to create in, the, in a way that it quote unquote counts is to disseminate literature amongst the group of us. Mm-hmm. And that was one way that it's, we have a lot of junior faculty in our, in our group. So it was really important from my perspective, being like a mid-level faculty to allow them to have opportunities to write and get first in senior authorship and many, many papers. And so I think that's one way that we've been able to use our knowledge, collective knowledge and skills to really make it count, as you say, in a way that helps promote our junior faculty as well. I'm sure Kristen would be delighted to hear that figuring out how to do something that's very important to you and to bring a, a, that scholarly nature to it. Yeah, it's making me curious to look up the the articles. I'm sorry that I haven't come across them already and to, to see what you guys are doing. How does this engender a deeper conversation, both within the academy and at our schools, about how to cultivate and reward this kind of service, which is beneficial to society. It's a beneficial to our academy. And indirectly, all of our, each one of our individual schools are potential benefactors of this kind of work. What should we be doing to cultivate that? And I don't know if you've had conversations at your individual institutions or with your department chairs or that's just really off your radar because you're doing this work because you love it and it really was not a major consideration why you even pursued it in the first place. So I, w- I will say that we're thinking that it could be helpful to recognize those of us who are doing this type of work is to really ha- make sure that promotion and tenure guidelines support this type of work and potentially release um, faculty from other potential service requirements Our division chair is excellent at ensuring that our faculty service requirements are equitable, and it's an ongoing conversation, which is really helpful. And also, in thinking broadly, when there are underrepresented faculty that we have to ensure that they have robust mentorship, sponsorship within their institution, as well as outside their institution to facilitate those introductions, such that there's equity in the promotion process and all these efforts are taken into account. To introduce something provocative to this conversation, <laughs> I, I think back to, and I can't remember which AACP annual meeting this was, where we had Stephanie Johnson as the keynote, and her research 
and we can link the, at least the Harvard Business Review report in the show notes, uh, that women and minorities are actually penalized for promoting diversity. So what was so amazing about this is the topic is one that research suggests is not necessarily welcomed, despite what our mission and values statements say. Yeah, so Jeff or, or Kristen, are there examples at your institution of people that have done admirable kinds of service that you wish there were better ways to recognize them? And it doesn't have to be in the DEI space, obviously. There, there's all sorts of different service that people do that just go underappreciated. And I'm sure you've seen it. Like you've seen it and you admire them and, and you just wish there were ways that their work could be recognized better. Well, I'll actually maybe share the good news is that we do have a way of recognizing that. So we have a yearly uh, William T. Miles Memorial Service Award that goes to a faculty member that has done great service to the community, whatever that might be. So that gets awarded yearly. So it is a it is a way, and it obviously it's going to count toward a promotion and tenure because it's it's an award. So fortunately, we do have a way. Now, probably could do more, and I'm sure there's people that does things that goes unnoticed that the larger faculty doesn't, we're not even aware. Because I regularly hear about something that someone is involved in. It's like, oh, I didn't know you did that. And they go, yeah, I've been doing that for 10 years. Well, I, I wondered, Kristen, it's not exactly the same thing, but the RX Writing Challenge, the start of that, the impetus for that, and the impact of that, how is that accounted for at your institution? Yeah, and it's it's really up to me to present what I am doing and the impact that it's having in our annual workload documentation process and in the conversations as well. And so I think that's a, a big message to all of our listeners out there is how do you learn to tell your story? Because, yeah, somebody may bump into the work that you're doing. They may observe or overhear you talking about it or something, but they may not even know. So how do you start communicating about it? And how do you start thinking about the impact of it so that you can put it forward in an elevator speech and say, this is who we're reaching and this is the value that it's bringing until we get really good at, at, at presenting that, I think it's hard for others to take notice and others to recognize. And I think that's a really good point, Kristen, because I've read dossiers before and I've read dossiers where someone has pointed out something that if it was just a single line on the CV, I would have read right by it. But then they were able to elaborate on what it actually entailed, the impact that it had, who it affected, how much work was put into it. And it made a big difference, right? So it does become, and I think that all of this promotion and tenure and annual reviews, it does come back to each of us that we have to elaborate because no one knows everything we do. My department chair doesn't know every single thing I do. It's, it's, it's my responsibility to elaborate that and say, this is what I'm doing. This is why it's important. This is why I need to continue doing it. Just listening to this, I was just thinking about how this parallels with students and sort of like the hidden curriculum, because this is something that I don't think every junior faculty member knows that they need to learn how to tell their story. This is just listening to you. I'm like, oh, I, I need to think about how to do this. So that could be going back to the mentorship piece. That could definitely be a big part of what it is that these mentors are doing for our racially and ethnically minoritized faculty members who may not have thought about this either. 
Well, and I'll even correlate it back a little bit. Academically, when I started in the academy, really promotion and tenure guidelines were only research focused. I mean, it was sort of like you have to have some teaching and it can't be terrible, but there was really no quality measure. It was more just like you've taught a couple of classes and and service was just like, we don't really even look at it. It's just the, the tiny leg on the stool. And you have seen that shift over the past 30 years to say, actually, it's not enough just to have said, I taught a couple of classes. First, it was, you know, satisfaction scores from students. Now it's peer evaluation. And so there's a model that's emerged. And for me, going up for promotion and tenure with teaching as my primary leg of the stool, I reached out to other people ahead of me who had done it and probably pioneers. I have a feeling some of you guys are the pioneers and it might be something that AACP could do to collect some examples of how we describe our service commitments. Yeah, another thought hearing about mentorship in this particular space and how to sell yourself and the importance of the work that you're doing. But it also is important, I think, for leaders within organizations to, since we just had the DEI Institute and we were talking about allyship today, is that people who are in power and have privilege need to to have allyship with folks that are doing important work that's meeting our mission, but does not get the recognition that it deserves. And it, so it does take some leadership within organizations to change how things are valued. And, it, and the same thing was true with teaching, right? Years ago, teaching was undervalued for its critical part of our mission. And we began to create structures and people created models. And some people took some leadership on that. And now most institutions do a much better job of evaluating that. I'm not saying we're perfected it yet. We haven't perfected it with scholarship either. We're always working on it to make it better. But I think service is the one area where we really, we value it, but we just haven't come up with the structures on how to, how to make it count the way we have with teaching and, and research. So I do hope this will generate a conversation about that. And I also hope that people will go to your website and donate. <laughs> We hope so, too. Absolutely. Looking at those stories, every time I go to the website, I do donate because you you can't read about these amazing people without feeling it in your heart. I also really want to encourage those of us that might be involved with the reviewing and drafting of promotion and tenure guidelines in our programs is, and Stuart's right, it's not, research isn't perfect, but we're good at counting things. If there's numbers of papers, numbers of grants, dollar signs. And so sometimes I feel like we have to give them things they can count, like number of racially and ethnically minoritized students who were supported. I also want to bring that back, something that Caroline said at the beginning about this started with a sort of a social media noticing campaign. So, Caroline, Eli, I don't know, how well did you guys know each other as a community before you did this? Yeah, that's such a great, I love that question because I knew no one. I followed all of you probably and all of them on Twitter. And I was like, I'm just this like little pharmacist over here, but I'm going to follow all these big name people on Twitter and learn about what they're doing. Um, And so, no, I actually still to this day have not met every member of the Farm God Wishes leadership team in person, but it is, it is like, we feel like a family now because we've just 
worked so much together over the past few years on this. But yeah, you know, mentioning social media, if I can, we definitely when we began, I think Twitter was really huge. Twitter RX was really huge and in the pharmacy community in general. And so that was where a lot of our initial momentum came from for the initiative. We were able to get the word out to people pretty easily. And then we noticed that this past year, there's been definitely a decline in, I think, the number of people on Twitter in, in our community anyway. And so we really did have a much more difficult time doing any fundraising whatsoever for the last scholarship round that we had. And so, you know, ASHP Foundation, we did partner with them and they supported a majority of these scholarships. But that was very different than in the past where we actually fundraised the entire amount for the trainees ourselves. So that was a little bit surprising to our team. And we aren't sure if it was just due to the social media decline or also the economy and just other priorities. So but it was a surprise. Well, bringing back a little bit to the community, belonging is such a a big part of feeling connected to others. This wasn't an existing group of people that knew each other well and had already established group norms and knew all about each other. The thing you had in common was this passion for this. So it's a real shout out to people who might feel a little bit lost find your people, they're out there. They don't all, they're not always next door, even at your institution. And Jeff may want to comment on this, the changing field of social media and how we use social media and how we spread good things. Were you queuing me up there, Tina? I was queuing you up. (laughs) Well, have you all have said and stated very clearly, like the the world of social media has changed in the last few years in terms of usage overall, in terms of platforms, how they're used, timing. Many people have, I think we've all known this for a while, but many people have finally made the decision to cut back on either cut off a certain platforms or just cut back in usage in general. So the, the spread of things the, and the way the algorithms work doesn't always match things that we're trying to do. It doesn't get to the people that we want to get them to anymore. And I'm sure that's going to continue to change as platforms change. And as we look at social media in five years, what does that look like? I mean, it could look like something we don't even imagine now because things come and go so quickly. But you know, I've noticed this in other things and other ventures that I'm in, like the social media traction is not good. Social media traction can be really good if you want to anger someone, if you want to make someone angry or scared, those algorithms pick that up really, really well mm. and it will spread. Mm. So if you want to try to make some people mad, and get your, <laughs> your word, you could probably get it to spread to a lot of people. Yeah. And, and we'll make sure to link to Jeff's new TikTok account in the show notes. <laughs> yes. And that is one I do not have. I do not have TikTok. I have to rely on my wife to show me my daughter's TikTok. So, Well, I think one of the messages that I will share with you, having been involved again in a, in a community of practice for you know, more than a decade, is that there's initial enthusiasm because people recognize a good idea. And then it wanes a bit and it, it takes persistence. I will just say that it takes persistence. When you come out on the other side, you're better, you're stronger. And during that period of time, you're figuring things out. You're figuring out what works, what doesn't. The idea is still there. The, the, the essential mission still exists. 
and you know people care about that. Now, how do you get your message out there? How do you cultivate new relationships? How do you get new people on your board? All those things become a part of the work, and that takes time and effort. And so it's going to be ongoing. And and this gets back to the service part of it again. It's not like it's a one-shot, like you worked on this for a month. This is potentially years of endeavor for all of you. And I'm sitting here thinking about how we endure through those ups and downs and over the years. And I'm curious, what brings us back to this hard work? And I think part of it is, yes, the service, the doing good. But I think it is also who we are shoulder to shoulder with and who we are working with that when we can reach across the globe virtually and connect with someone who is going to be there and is going to care about the problem or uh, help with the issue, that brings us a sense of joy too. Uh, that that sense of being connected in our service. Yeah, I was going to say after what Stuart said is that we're in the process of reorganizing and restructuring to figure out what is this going to look like in the future. And to Jeff's point, we have to be really nimble with the way social media is changing over the next few years. We don't know. Does that mean we create a substack? I don't know. And then to, to Kristen's point, we're very lucky to have this community of individuals. And I think in the hard days when you're in the middle of teaching and writing exams and doing your other service that you need to do, what brings me back when it's hard is that is this group of people is, is incredible and dedicated and good-hearted. And we all work together amazingly well. And we all pick up when the others can't. And so the sense of belonging, like you mentioned, and community is so important when you do this kind of work. So, so true, Kristen. It's our dream team, for sure. Just as a kind of follow-up to these ideas is that people in leadership, I think, should be enabling, empowering, encouraging people to find their peeps in order to keep them in the academy because we hopefully are carving out some time to work on service-related things And that's one of the things that brings a lot of satisfaction to many of us. I won't say all of us. Some feel it's a burden to do these service-related activities. But certainly everyone on this FICA episode right now, this is a part of the joy of their work and is to create this service that they do for others. And so how do we ensure as leaders in organizations that people are working on something that brings joy to them. And it could be their research, it could be their their teaching, or it could be their service. Maybe it's all three, but they got to find some joy in their work. Otherwise, they're not going to continue with it, right? They're not going to stick with the organization. And with that, I just want to say goodbye, everybody. I'll see you in a month. Goodbye. Good day. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Everybody find your joy. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe 
facebook.com slash Pharmacy Fica. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir.